0: All right, if you guys can please stand with me as I read um, the word of God. And when I finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and then you guys respond, thanks be to God. So Psalm 73, verses 1 through 17. Truly is God, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean, and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken, and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, Sojourn. Uh, Let's uh, let's go to the Lord and just. Ask him to bless our time as we sit under the preaching of his word. Dear Heavenly Father, as we gather as your people this Sunday, we, we see it as a, a bittersweet time, Lord, because there are those among us that are leaving this area. Lord, we just take this moment to thank you for the Kaintoffs and for, for the Hasbrooks Thank you for allowing them to serve in our midst, for allowing us to get to know them, to walk beside them, Lord, to serve with them. And God, we will miss them, but Lord, we delight in the fact that we will worship in eternity with them. Lord, bless them where they go, wherever you may have them. And God, I pray also for the time that we spend under your word. Lord, your word is transformative. It casts light in the inner crevices of our heart that are so dark and cold. And we pray that you would bless this time. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have a lot of kids here today. And when I was a kid, I used to enjoy reading Aesop's Fables. How many of you guys remember Aesop's Fables? I see a bunch of hands. Okay, yeah. How the, how the uh, elephant got his nose, how the camel got his humps. And uh, as you know, each of these stories has a moral, and the the moral kind of teaches a point or a lesson, and that's kind of the case with Psalm 73. But Psalm 73 is no mere fable, no, it it is powerful, and as I prepared for it this week, I felt like just peeling back a layer after layer on an onion, and it kept going deeper and deeper. It's a a cautionary tale told from the perspective of the psalmist. And it's like Aesop's fables, it's got a moral to it. And that moral is found in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That that verse, that theme, drives everything that follows. This object lesson that we're going to learn is this. We may not realize it at the time, but God's goodness is unfathomable and unsearchable. And he is truly, truly good to his children. Some of you already know this. And this may just be yet another sermon in the long list of, hey, God is good, God is love, God loves you. But hang in there because you're going to see that God's goodness for you is, a, is very special. You're going to see that he may let you slip. He may let you stumble, but he will not let you fall. So let's get back to the moral of this psalm. The goodness of God to the pure in heart. Saints, it is his goodness to those who he calls his own that will transcend all understanding. Even in the midst of great trial and suffering, even in the midst of our obstinate stubbornness, in our brutishness of heart, in the midst of a world where the wicked prosper, his goodness never changes despite the circumstances that may say otherwise. We're going to see in this psalm several elements. It makes for like a good Hollywood drama. There's doubt, confusion, envy, wickedness, and a man trying to make sense of it all. I just wish I had that deep Hollywood trailer voice to announce all that. But this man's name is Asaph. In, in his own human understanding, he just, he just he doesn't understand, God, how is it that these people are even prospering? And like ASAP, we try to make sense of the world around us. We we have this innate need to to understand how things work. What's the system? How do we crack the system, the code? Why do things work the way they do? And when we can't figure something out, it drives us crazy. I like to say that I could have been a math major in college, except for all the numbers. I was never very gifted at math. Uh, but one of the things I do remember was that if, if the problems made sense, it was because I understood the steps that I was supposed to take. You know, I understood the theory behind why you do whatever it is that you're supposed to do. But that wasn't the case when I was taking precalculus. I just, I couldn't get those concepts even though I knew kind of the steps that I was supposed to take. And so it was very difficult. And I think that rings true for much of life. And especially when we see the wicked prospering and it doesn't make sense when you look at it with, with our understanding, when you look at it from our perspective. And so we're going to look at how Asaph saw the wicked and what made it so difficult for him to understand God's goodness towards his children. So follow along as I read the text in light of the moral of that story that's about to unfold. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, My feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily they threaten oppression they set their mouths against the heavens their tongue struts through the earth therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault with them and they say how can god know is there knowledge in the most high behold these are the wicked always at ease they increase in riches all in vain have i kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. This morning... We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. Psalm 73 is like a little miniature vignette that tracks Asaph's journey to understanding the world around him and how God's goodness plays a part of it. Our psalm starts off like those movies that begin at the end and much of the movie is a flashback. Asaph starts with that conclusion, truly God is good to Israel, to those pure in heart. And when he does this, he's setting up the tension of what is to come. God is good. Yes, we get that. But how can we say that God is good to the pure in heart when those that seek and serve him are suffering and those that mock God and are against him apparently flourish and they get richer? And I think the tension is found in the fact that whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, it's all too easy to slip into this karma mentality when viewing life it's when we view the world around us through this lens of karma that good things are going to happen to you the more you do good things god rewards your goodness you do bad things god's going to reward you with badness but if you look at life like this it's not going to make any sense when seen through that lens there are brothers and sisters walking in faith and purity. They're doing good, but they're suffering persecution and sickness, unhappiness, depression. And at the same time, the same time, the headlines are filled with those that don't have the slightest inkling towards a life of faith in Christ, and they're living it up. They're getting away with murder. They're wealthy. they enjoy immense power and prestige. They get preferential treatment, and it shocks our sensibilities. Why are the good things not coming my way? I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing. God, you should be blessing me. And it just doesn't add up. Brothers and sisters, it won't ever add up when we look at things on a merit-based system like that. Because God isn't going to do good things or be good to us because we are pure. No, we are pure in heart because God has been good to us. This is worth mentioning again. We are pure in heart because God has been good to us. We have no capacity towards pureness, towards goodness, apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. And so starting in verse 2, Asaph is going to start right in with this jolting statement. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is his wake-up call. Have you ever been driving and you, you sort of, you drive that same route all the time? And maybe you drive for like 20 minutes and you pull into your driveway and you're like, where have the last 20 minutes been? Or you just kind of zone out and you, you, you're so weary and tired And maybe you drift off to the side and you hit the washboard and you shock, you wake up and you're startled and your, your, your heart's racing. Well, that's kind of what's happening here with Asaph. You know, he's instantly more aware and that's, he's recalling what precipitated his near disaster of faith. And he's reflecting on, on the hindrance that he had to a proper understanding. He writes in verse three, that reason for his downfall. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what was it that made him nearly stumble, that made him nearly fall down in his faith? It was envy. Envy. But envy came about as a result of what he was doing. You see, Asaph became envious because of where his gaze was when i saw the prosperity of the wicked when when i'm spending all my time trolling the internet looking at the wicked and the prosperous he became envious his focus was not on god his gaze was not toward the heavens he wasn't heavenly minded and kingdom focused because envy just doesn't pop like that in your heart it it starts with a small seed It's a weed that grows in your heart. And it's cultivated by our gaze. Watered by our desires. Fertilized by our envy and our our wants and our perceived needs. And as it grows, it pushes out the good things in our hearts. So envy doesn't cause envy. Brothers and sisters, it's the direction of where we're looking that causes us to envy. Remember, It's the direction of your gaze that makes you envy. And so let me elaborate more on this point by explaining how Asaph saw the wicked to show you why he was envious of the wicked. In verse 3, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here, he's looking at the world around him and all he sees is the prosperity of the wicked. He sees them flourishing. He sees them doing well. He's probably thinking, "That, that doesn't sit well with me. That's not right. In verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They don't seem to have any sort of health issues. You know, they're happy, they're well-fed, they want for nothing. And in verse 5, we read, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Hey, they're above the common man. They've got it easy. In verse 6, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Because of all this exalted position that they have, because of all the seeming blessings that they have, they get puffed up with pride. And violence covers them as a garment. It's it's all about them. It characterizes them. And then in verse 7, Because of all this, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow through follies. They want it all, and they plot in their heart to take it. And so in verse 8, They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. This is like the schoolyard bully. They, they speak with tongues that are designed to hurt and extort those that are around them. And then that leads to verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. From heaven to earth, everywhere, they're arrogant and they ignore the fact that there's a God above. They walk as though they are their own God. And the result of all this is therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They enjoy such power and prestige that the greater community accept them and follow them, and no one seems to take issue with them. In verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? This is the height of their arrogance. Does God know? Does God really care? Because I've not yet been judged. And I probably never will. Those who went before me, they lived a great life. And they didn't have anything bad happen to them. So how? Does, does your God really, really care? I mean, if you say he's so powerful, what's he doing about it? And so, with this kind of life and understanding, Asaph is just pulling his hair out. And he ends with the summary statement in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't go bad for them. It only gets better. And so after painting this rather bleak picture, Asaph makes a startling statement. It's like at the, at the, the depths of his despair, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Brothers and sisters, have you felt like that? It's like saying, what is the point? I mean, God, if you are so good, why do I hurt when I'm following your laws? Why does it hurt so bad to do what is right? Don't you want me to be happy? So Asaph doesn't mince any words here. He pours out his heart. And he establishes the evidence of their prosperity. And he soundly condemns their character, to be sure. But he ends with himself, talking about how this was just a colossal waste of time. Why? Why even bother to be pure in heart? And so if this psalm were a roller coaster, we're at the most tension-filled moment of the ride. Right? What's the, when you're on that, the roller coaster, what's, what are those moments? You sit down in the car, you pull down the smelly sweaty thing that locks you in and then you get the lurch and there's a the clink 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 and you're climbing up the hill and the, the gravity starts pulling you back and you get higher and higher off the ground and the tension fills well right now we're at that point we're about to crest over the hill and just as we're reaching there asaph is saying what's the point god this makes no sense i followed you did what you asked and yet you've chosen to bless them those people oppose you, they speak against you, they oppress your children, and you bless them with an easy life of riches and power. What's the point of following you, Lord? I am not happy. Asaph's assessment of life here has created this tension. He's trying to understand how it is that the wicked prosper, that they lead these lives of luxury and privilege while at the same time oppressing the children of God and speaking out against God. And it's no wonder he's jealous. He's jealous. I said earlier that it was where his gaze was that made him envious. The problem with Asaph's view and his understanding of the world and the wicked was the result of looking at himself in light of others and not looking at himself in the light of God. It's watching the lives of the wicked around him and comparing himself and honestly be, being jealous of their prosperity, being jealous of their apparent happiness. But friends, friends, Open your Bible. From beginning to end, the Bible is replete with the victims of envy. The first murder Cain's sacrifice was rejected, and so it was out of envy that he killed his brother Abel. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because they were envious of the father's love for him. King Saul was envious of David's success. And so he sought to hunt down David and kill him. And most importantly, if you look in Matthew 27, where Jesus is before Pilate, and Pilate's offering the Jews, I'll give you Barabbas or Jesus. We read, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. It's truly scary just how powerful, how subtle, and how insidious envy is. It's like that annoying younger brother of pride. When you're prideful, you feel this this unwarranted sense of worth that you're better than those that you're comparing yourself to. You're looking down on them. But when you're envious, you feel a sense of loss or, or worthlessness when you compare yourselves to others and you're jealous of the worth that you apparently see in them. The proud look down at others and the envious look up at others and are jealous. But both of these sins are rooted in the sin of comparison. Envy is like a corrosive acid that eats you away from the inside. Have you ever wanted something that someone else has? Some talent or gift or blessing? It can be anything. You want that that thing that that person has and you want it so badly And you want to see them crushed. Or take, for instance, when someone gets something that you want and you you smile outwardly, but inwardly, I I don't find that pleasing that this person is getting that thing. It makes me me cringe. Even if it's a small cringe, I'm envying. If I'm looking on others, comparing myself to them, no matter how subtle, combined with a feeling of What they have, they don't deserve. Or that it's better suited with me. That's envy. And when that happens, we're going to outwardly smile. We're going to outwardly offer our congratulations. But inwardly, we're crushing them with our mind, imagining their demise. And envy can seep into your heart when you look at those around you. You notice them and you think of yourself. I work just as hard as that person. I wish I had what he got. I should have received that. I'm not as bad as that person, and, and yet they're blessed this way? I eat way better than that person. How is it possible that they look so fit? Why is she getting married and not me? I wish I had that talent. Why has God blessed them with an easier life? Why him? Why her? What about me, Lord? Doesn't seem fair. Because when we compare ourselves to others we turn from looking at God and when you turn to looking at the circumstances of your life, to the circumstances of the lives around you and in those moments, it's like you're walking away from the campfire at night. Have you been camping out in the woods? No lights, no moon. You have a huge burning fire and you're sitting around with friends and you're, you're watching the fire and if you get up to leave the fire, as you walk away, everything appears dark, and it's colder, and you stumble just by yourself. When you leave the illuminating presence of God and his words, you're walking blind. You're trying to feel your way, resting on your own understanding, unaware that you're about to trip and fall on your face. Your understanding is coming from the circumstances of your life, And and the the blessings of your lives and the blessings of the lives of others are never illuminating. They don't give life-giving light like the light of our God, Jehovah. Brothers and sisters, envy can come about in very subtle ways. You see, Asaph was essentially asking this, Why aren't you good to me as you are to the wicked? What is the point of keeping myself pure if it doesn't seem to be doing any good? We can take this a step further. We can apply it to the body of Christ, to us here, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you asked the question maybe a few weeks ago or days or maybe even this morning? Oh God, why aren't you as good to me as you are to those brothers and sisters? Oh saints, that question can be very, very subtle. When my wife Hunter and I decided that we wanted to have kids, it, it did not happen right away. One year went by, and another went by. And as in that time, I was more and more aware of the children around me, the baby announcements. And they seemed to be coming in multiple waves, regularly and increasing. Although looking back, that really wasn't the case. And I, I would wonder then, Lord, it's our time, right? Any day now, God. And underlying these comments were the questions I was asking, oh Lord, why are you giving these couples children and not us? I mean, God, come on, we got it together. I got a good, stable job. We can raise children well. You should be blessing us. And I didn't say those questions out loud, but they were in my heart, and I knew they were there. Brothers and sisters, don't get me wrong at all, though. It's a good thing to ask our Lord to bless you. It's a, it's a good and godly thing to lay out your petitions to the Lord. But it's when the desire for that thing leads us to look at those around us that have it. It's when the desire for that thing takes our eyes off the gaze towards heaven and more towards that thing that we're walking into the the realm of envy. It's there that envy is conceived. And if left unchecked, it's gonna cause you it's gonna cause you to despise the ones you ought to be loving. We're called to mourn with those who mourn and take joy with those who take joy. And I think the harder part of that admonition is taking joy with others that are joyful. It's hard to be happy for someone when they get something that we desperately want. When you compare yourselves to others, there are only two possible outcomes, pride or envy. Envy starts with a comparison of you with regard to somebody else. They are a have- and I am a have-not. Friends, compare begets despair. Whether you're comparing yourself to some famous Hollywood celebrity or to the person sitting next to you, even little, tiny, envious comparisons water the seeds of despair in your life, and it just becomes all the more complicated when it doesn't seem fair. Envy robs you of your ability to be happy and joyful for others. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil spirit revives the body, but enviness is rottenness to the bones. Envy is unique in sin. It's unique in the sense that there, there is no pleasure associated with envy. There are fleeting pleasures to be had with lust, gluttony, greed, and pride, but there are no pleasures found in envy. And yet... We give ourselves over to it. Why? And because envy lies so deep in the recesses of our soul, it's where our deepest, darkest desires are found. It's very hard to confess it. It goes to our very core of our being. And as we've seen, it clouds our judgment. Asaph's assessment of the wicked, it was pretty good. But I don't think that it paints the entire picture. The wicked that he described may have been prospering outwardly, but I don't think that if you sat down with them and had a long conversation, that you would find them to be very happy or inwardly prosperous at all. As I sat down with my sweet brother Edward this week to go over this sermon, I was struck when he told me that envy is one of the main sources of a lot of people's problems. People don't just have a name for it. But they know there's something in them that is making them discontent. Something that is interfering with the relationships with others. And oftentimes, that discontentment is rooted in a comparison with another brother or sister in Christ. There are people that seem to have it all and yet are the most unhappy. They are the most unfulfilled that you will ever meet. So before you feel tempted to compare yourselves to another, think hard about that person you're comparing yourself to. Because I can promise you, you will never know the full picture. Children, you may be envious of a friend's good grades, but completely unaware of the pressure that they are under from their parents to score well. The fear that they have that if they do poorly, they're going to come under scorn and ridicule. And parents, you may be envious of somebody's well-behaved child, but you have no idea of the sacrifice that those parents have put in to train that child up, only to have that child show outward obedience that belies a heart of stone. Saints, you may be envious of someone's good looks, but completely unaware of how incredibly insecure they are as they see every flaw in the mirror. And you may be envious of someone's family life, but completely clueless that that family is just a facade. No one talks at home. It's being held together by a thread. Or if you see someone in leadership and you you long for that, that prestige, that esteem, but you don't see the pressure or the demands of that position, the time that it takes away from family, and the list goes on and on. When you see a mom and a newborn and you envy her, you may not notice the toll that that baby takes upon her relationship with her husband, her time in the Lord, or the depression that she's suffering under having just given birth. Even when you see someone happy or wealthy and you want that for yourself, you may not know the pain that that person carries with them. My point is this. Envy distorts. Envy is only going to give you the picture that you want to see. It's going to present the best picture that there is. And it's going to cause you to see only that which you want to see. It makes you discontent. And discontentment is a small itch. It's small. But when you scratch it, it grows into a festering wound of faithlessness. Saints, everyone has a story. No one escapes hardship in this life. And God does not promise us a life of ease as we see In this psalm, Asaph was suffering. We see this in verse 14. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Envy at its core is anti-love. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love does not envy. And the reason for this is because it can't. Envy and love are mutually exclusive. They can't be together. You can't love someone genuinely. You can't want what is best for them in their life. And at the same time, want them to be crushed and that thing taken away from them. Because if you truly love someone, you want what is best for them. And as I meditated on this psalm this week, I was struck by the fact that this psalm is about understanding. Understanding God's goodness. It's a before and after picture of Asaph's understanding God's goodness in the light of the prosperity of the wicked. In the beginning, Asaph does not understand because his heart is filled with envy. His view is distorted by that envy. From his envious viewpoint, the wicked seemed invincible and the struggle to walk in faith and godliness seemed foolish. His thoughts showed that he was comparing himself to the wicked. God, I'm walking according to your law. I'm keeping your precepts. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But the wicked are prospering and not me. And then the after picture which we're going to consider more in depth next week. He comes around and he says, God upholds me. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me the glory. It's only after he views things rightly that he gains better understanding. And armed with the right understanding, he's able to see the forest for the trees to get that big picture. So the good news, saints, is that God will not leave you there. Later in the psalm, we'll see that Asaph enters into the sanctuary, that God turned his eyes to him. And we'll talk more about that next week. And when you look at the way that Asaph described the wicked, when you set your gaze on God, you won't want to be like the wicked. You won't won't want anything to do with the wicked if you're looking at God. You want to be like Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. How can we be envious of the wicked when we see that they've denounced God, when we perceive their end, it's God's goodness that he allows us to see that. It's God's goodness that he allows us to wrestle with these questions and pour our hearts out to him and to speak into one another's lives and to encourage one another. It's a good thing that God gives us insight into his goodness. He makes us want him more than anything else and everything else Is going to pale in comparison to him. Friends, if there is envy in our lives, this life is going to be a struggle to walk in faith and godliness. If you're envying, it's going to be so hard to walk in faith. A walk of faith and godliness is going to seem foolish. It's going to seem pointless. It's going to seem a waste of time because you're more concerned with what you do not have when you do not realize what you have. You have Christ. But praise be to God that He will not let us fall. He will not leave us there. We, like Asaph, we're going to stumble. We're going to trip. But notice, it doesn't say, doesn't say anywhere that He fell. God is not going to let us fall because the power of the gospel is alive in us. And if you can't say what the power of the gospel is in your life, it's this. The gospel makes it so that we can be an adopted son or daughter of God the Father. Because Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience. and He made full payment for the penalty of our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead so that those who repent of their sins and believe in his name may be saved. Without the gospel... The book of Ephesians says that we are darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardness of our heart. Friend, if you cannot pray with confident thanksgiving regarding the death and resurrection of Jesus, bringing you into the family of God, I pray that you would consider doing that now. Or at the very least, ask God to soften your heart and make you receptive to his gospel mercy. Because without the saving power of the gospel, things like envy aren't going to just make you slip and stumble. But they will most assuredly make you fall and never get up. Know that it is Christ that keeps us from falling. It is Christ, His blood, that keeps our hearts pure. It is Christ through His Holy Spirit that keeps envy in check and turns our gaze to God. And so friends, every week here at Sojourn, we are reminded of that sacrifice of christ his death and resurrection that while we were a stiff-necked people that do not look to god while we were sinners he died for us he gave himself up for us he suffered in our place and that we may change our garments of violence and put on robes of righteousness god's going to look at us and say well done We remember that there was a a night that envy of wicked men poisoned their hearts so much that they handed over the Prince of Peace to be murdered. Knowing full well what he was about to go through, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, this is an act of worship for us as a family. Christians have been doing this for nearly 2,000 years because it is, points to such an incredible experience in our lives. The death and resurrection of Jesus. So we put aside our envy, our malice, and our pride, and we come as one family, as brothers and sisters that have been united in Christ, wanting the best for each other. And there's nothing magical or mystical. It's just bread and grape juice. But there's beauty in what they point to, Jesus offering himself up for us. And the act that allows us to turn away from our circumstances and look on God, to rejoice in being near God. So with this in mind, take a moment to examine your hearts and your lives, and when you come forward for the bread and juice, what Jesus has done on the cross will be spoken over you. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus, we ask that you just remain in your seat and soak in what we've talked about today. Because this Lord's Supper, this this communion, is our act of worship. It's our yes and amen to what Jesus has done. So with that in mind, brothers and sisters, the table's been set. The Lord's supper's been prepared. Come, eat and drink and be reminded of God's everlasting goodness to you in Christ. Let's pray. Dearly Father, you are you are so so good to us. Lord, we Look around us and we are discontent. But Lord, through that discontentment, turn our gaze towards you to show us that we have, we want for nothing because we have you, we have Jesus. God, I pray that as we sit under your word, that these words would not just run off as on hard soil, but that they would soak in, that they would germinate. That they would produce a fruit of righteousness in us that would push out that fruit of envy. That we would walk in faith, wanting the best for our brothers and sisters around us. And we ask this now in the name of your Son who died for us. Amen.